Hey Auntie is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. We acknowledge that this is the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Cullen Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. And we extend that respect to all Indigenous Australians and Indigenous mob all over the world. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. There you are. I've been expecting you. I've just popped the kettle on. Come on in. Hi, and welcome to Hey Auntie. I'm Chantelle Weatherall, and it's my absolute pleasure to have you join me. Hey sis, come on in, take a seat, and make yourself comfy. With Hey Auntie, we're going to remix the proud tradition of the Black Auntie, and we're going to use it to demonstrate that there's millions of ways to be a magical Black woman. Sounds good? Hey Auntie! Hey Auntie! Hey Auntie! Hey This week I'm so delighted to share with you a chat that I had with the beautiful Faustina Agali. Faustina is so well known in the Australian media landscape. She's been a TV presenter, a producer, a music journalist, an actor, and um, also a much-loved DJ uh, under her other name of DJ Fuzzy. Now, Fasina is obviously killing it on many fronts, but she's also incredibly generous and courageous in sharing and being vulnerable about her anxiety and about uh, her journey towards coming out as a proud gay woman. I absolutely loved this conversation. It was incredibly enlightening and has continued to um, add value to my life in so many ways. Thank you so much, Fustina, and uh, I can't wait for you to listen. Check it out. Yeah, I feel like it's really important to say, because I think a lot of, well, maybe not a lot, but some people can spot that um, they can't really place a specificity on my ethnicity. And so quite often I will say I'm Ghanaian and Chinese. And then usually before they even ask the question, what's Ghanaian or where is it or whatever, I say, and Ghana is in West Africa, just to make a geographical point of where I'm, what my roots are and where I'm from. If it's playful, like on Instagram or what have you, because there, I expect people to kind of already have a sense of who I am. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. why would they be following me? It's like, what are you here for? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And so um, I often refer to myself on Instagram as Blasian. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah, because I think that term is kind of cute and hilarious. And um, 
I usually use it in a queer context, like hashtag Ablasian wants a wife. Oh my um, goodness, that's amazing. It's a play on <laughs> a farmer wants a wife. Um, so, yeah, it just depends, really. Um, black, yeah, I, not that I really want to harp on this relationship or anything, but my most uh, recent queer relationship I had with a woman, she just had zero idea about uh, like a, a multicultural understanding. It was, it was very, I realised that that was a very big canyon between us. Right. And it was one time, I think, because the Solange album was playing at a cafe and, I, and you know, I, I still didn't really know where she kind of sat on, on the cultural spectrum of understanding anything. And I was just saying how, because, you know, obviously the album sounds very pretty, but the messages are very potent and loaded about how distressing and violent the black experience can be for, for a woman specifically. And um, I was breaking it down for her. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this song is incredible. It's the song Mad. And she's just oh, like, oh, yes. well, I wouldn't have – she didn't really pay attention to the lyrics. She's just like, it just sounds really beautiful. And I'm like, yeah, and I said that's the clever thing about her representation of music. And then um, over time we, we got into an argument, as you do in relationships, and then once she said – you know, everything that you say is black this and black that. And she's just, oh, she was wow. just so frustrated. And it was just like, gosh, every time I've mentioned it has been a sense of pride for who I am. And you've kind of taken that as, as me causing a division between you and I, when I'm just exuding my pride. And she never got it until the end of the relationship, I don't think anyway. And even then she was just like, she was out. She just couldn't handle it. So Wow, that's a lot of work. It's almost like you having an understanding of yourself and having that feeling of belonging, which is pretty hard fought for us, I reckon, um, yeah. is somehow something that alienated her. Yeah, which... Um, bizarre. It is bizarre. You know, I really try and be considerate and compassionate, but, like, it's bizarre, but that that's, has to do with their lack of wanting to know what the experience of living in Australia can be like for another person who isn't white. I think that has been the biggest through line is that, you know, one person can't claim that they're empathic like she did, for example, and yet not give space for, to, to be to let other people be heard and not think that it's, uh, you know, for us to claim pride as a sense of excluding others. Somebody else, I noticed a comment on Instagram to a Janelle Monet concert a fan wrote, I feel like I need to give up my ticket to somebody because I don't feel welcome or wow. feel like I should be celebrating your experience. Like I feel like I should give it to somebody who seems more deserving or words to that effect. Right. And um, Janelle wrote this most beautiful response saying, you know, that has never been my intention. I'm sorry that you feel this way. Please, you know, feel free to come to my shows. You will be celebrated. But I think because Janelle has emphasize the queerness a lot more right being a woman of color for some reason you know this isn't um, for me it's yeah white people message. might say this is not for me and you know what there are songs that aren't for people for everybody yeah, it's you, for specific people and that's okay do you know sure. what I mean? like, you should definitely like that unfortunate young lady who got on stage with kendrick and over enthusiastically rapped all of the words to his song including the n-word she oh was mis misguided for sure but i i never feel like our pride is exclusionary 
I always feel like it's so celebratory. Yeah, big time. I, I think so too. And, you know, I, I experience that as a queer person as well. Like I can see why we need that. We need to celebrate it because, you know, for so long we're told to dial it down and Absolutely. we shouldn't. And the do. impact of that is so significant on people. When I see um, pride events, it fills my heart with joy. And I never think as a person who isn't queer that I'm not welcome there. I think I want to be in that space and applaud and celebrate people being liberated. That's super cool. Yeah, I just, I, yeah, I've, I know what you mean by so, that. So it's funny I, that you mentioned that you feel like you want to join in because when I was closeted, I lived in Sydney for the longest time hosting video hits. And um, for the beginning period of my contract with Channel 10, I lived just down the road from Oxford Street. Oh, wow. So it was easily two years in which I was just down the road from Mardi Gras, but it never, it never registered with me that this was a festival. And, yes, other people would go and have a great time, but I never felt like I needed to go. I'm just like, yeah, cool, the gay people are doing their thing great good for them yeah awesome. like, and it was just it felt like just any other kind of festival or multicultural festival that happens in melbourne for example like there's certain weeks that are dedicated to certain cultures and i just felt like that was like another one you're like cool yeah you can opt in or opt out it doesn't matter it doesn't i don't feel like i feel like assaulted by it or like exactly it's not like something against you but you would kind of assume that if you are partnering with someone and attracted to them and you know wanting to know more about them you would at least be curious about their sense of self yeah you're right um i think that that is you know this is just a very um isolated or small example of what is happening in Australia right now uh, with all the inflammatory talk that is happening in Parliament um, and politicians coming out of the woodwork. Um, They're coming from all angles, aren't they? My God. And it's just like I think the really confusing thing with identity for a lot of these people is they seem to claim that the Australian way of life is one particular way and doesn't include an embrace of our multiculturalism, which is so wrong. And it, before all that, just the acknowledgement that it is that, that we live on a black country. It's like, ridiculous. Yeah. It's truly ridiculous. And I think it's disappointingly pessimistic as well. I think Australians celebrating who they are and thriving can only add to everybody thriving you know you uh getting a really strong sense of your identity could only enrich the experience of being your partner i would assume i certainly know that when i was flailing wildly to try and find out who i was i was probably not very fun to hang out with right so was that you basically having an existential crisis oh man i think probably the first Ooh, 25 to 28 years of my life because I grew up in a very white uh, context in a little village in the countryside in England and um, I feel like everything in my uh, genetics was fiercely resisting my attempts to assimilate so my oh. my hair was like not having it 
my hips were like, pow, we're here. You don't look like the other girls. You're 11. You've got hips. <laughs> wow. wow. And I spent probably years and years trying to suppress it and control it. Our cultural identity is, it's a large thing to try and grapple with without assistance. It is. It is. It can be. Um, you know, you're talking about being without a black collective experience and I can um, empathize to a, a degree of, about what you went through. I can't say that mine has been as stressful, um, but and I really do feel for you f for going through that because, you know, those two cultures pretty much sit polar opposites in so many respects for all the reasons that you mentioned um, for your appearance, um, your biological build and how that within itself is something to, to um, take pride in and not to dial down whatsoever. You, you know, you're meant to embrace stuff like that. But if you live in a particular culture where everybody is a particular body type and acts a very particular way in a cookie cutter way you, you're going to be out of sorts um yeah whereas I grew up in a my, my Chinese side I grew up Chinese and then discovered more about my African identity as I went on grew older but at least the Chinese side it was a I could share the minority status with my family right my family, yeah. you know in a in a country well, in a suburb that was multicultural when I was little, but by and large in a country that was white. So, you know, that that my family was my security blanket, you know, my and there were a lot of cousins and a lot of aunties and uncles and um, cultural events and things that I could could, um, you know, literally be a part of in any given way. And not one of my Chinese family members ever made me feel different. That's wonderful. Yeah, which is incredible. And it's unfortunate that I've heard of stories of other biracial children that have felt lesser than because they're black. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. I love that you were able to celebrate your difference through yeah. through um, your Chinese cultural connection. And I guess that, that did that sort of pave the path for you to be really comfortable with being different from the mainstream when you were younger? I guess, yeah, I, it did. I had no choice. I was always in some way reminded of how different I was. Sometimes it wasn't pleasant, obviously. Mm. I had experiences, microaggressions of racism and then overt racism where we feared for our safety. But um, In, and then in time, Australia, Christina? That, yeah. Right. Australia. Hanson during, uh, during the 90s really made a dent on how Asians were treated in this country. And um, it's something that I just don't, I don't shake off anymore. Like it still kind of sits in inside me and it, I always, in some ways I feel like I need to watch myself or what, look out from, from, for my Chinese family members. Uh, there was one incident when I was probably in my early teens or just like a, maybe I was still a child, but um, we were, I was in the back of my mum's car and my mum and my auntie were in the front seats and they were driving out of a shopping centre and um, a car of white Australians pulled up and tried to veer us off the road. My goodness. 
and they they yelled out of the window, go back home to your country, you're fucking Asians and all this other stuff, like vile, 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 threatening talk. Um, That's and, scary stuff. Yeah, and, you know, my mum and my auntie in particular was quite panicked in the front seat and they didn't know what to do and eventually they drove away but obviously we were shaken and here I am at the back, like, feeling completely helpless. How old would you have been at that point? I either was, like, I was still a child or in my early teens. One, I, I forget when Hanson made that famous that famous um, speech about, about being swamped by Asians, but that just changed everything in 1996 so I would have been 12 wow so young to have such an a tough experience and to see that amount of hostility when mm. you know you, you've grown up in Australia for most of your upbringing um it must have it must have felt like do I belong here is there a place for me here for sure there was one period where we did seriously consider my mum doesn't remember this stuff she tends to just erase really traumatic stuff from her brain quite that quickly generation do don't they they're they're, yeah. they're just like carry on delete yeah and i'm just like i can't delete this from my mind it's no. too it's too much um but she had, had considered she had verbalized this to me she was just like i wonder if we should go back to england if it gets out of hand i think we we, we should go back to england because that's really the only other home that we have Um, because my mum gave up her Malaysian status um, to get an Australian passport. So, you know, we were kind of stuck for a solution. A place that would feel like home where you could feel safe and feel like you would be able to belong because you um, you guys were from London originally, right? Yeah. So mum was in London. She moved from Malaysia uh, to study nursing in London, which is quite a popular thing to have done in the seventies. My father, um, I think had a British, I found out that he had a British principal or a British teacher in Ghana. And that's what encouraged him to go over to the UK. He was already a nurse, um, a qualified nurse. And they met there in, in London in the seventies and, um, had my brother and had me. So, but I came to Australia, I think by the time I was about 18 months old, we'd left Australia when I was about a year old. Um, after my father passed away, we'd, we'd always planned as a family unit to come to Australia, but he passed away and things changed. Um, and then I spent, we as a family spent six months in Malaysia en route to settle in Australia. Right, yeah. right. And so where would you say that you feel most at home now? I like this question because um, I like how you say you asked where do I feel most at home because <laughs> it makes me think about where I need to accommodate and if I do ever truly feel at home anywhere. Um, but I I think I'm, I'm lucky to say that I, I feel most at home with who I'm with more so than place. Oh, wonderful. Place is secondary. Um, so my mother, I feel at home with my mum. Um, and, um, I feel at home with my, my Chinese family, particularly my Chinese family that is still here in Australia. And I feel at home with my Ghanaian 
French, Ghanaian and Ghanaian French family in England. Um, that's where I would feel most at home with the people that I love. Yeah, that's gorgeous because that can go anywhere you want with you, right? It's like wherever your mum is, wherever your peeps are, you feel at home. Yeah, but at the same time as well, I don't know, I think about mortality a lot, probably more than the average person because of my my father passed away when I was a child and I do have extreme anxiety around my mum ever leaving and I feel like I will definitely be going through some form of a crisis of some some sort when that happens and obviously I don't want to preempt it or you know bring it into my life you know sooner than um when it will happen but I just know that my sense of home will definitely change after she passes and I don't know what that means for me right now it's it scares the hell out of me That is understandable and it is terrifying. I think so many of us place so many of our sort of eggs in that basket as far as who we are. Um, I know that my family unit for me is me, my mom and my brother. Wow, yeah. That's my universe. And outside of that, yeah, I would feel quite adrift. So, yeah, I can completely understand that. Um, You know, you grew up with this wonderful, vibrant, accepting uh, Chinese family in Australia. And when did you start to sort of develop um, an understanding of your blackness and your black consciousness? My blackness definitely was um, made known to me early on because of how our family unit presented to everybody else. So if I walked around with my mum, people would always question what the relationship was. They couldn't believe that my mother was my biological mother. Um, And so I think that's why I could recite the fact of Ghana, West Africa. My dad was from Ghana, West Africa. Very factual sort of uh, representation ever since I can remember. You sort of cut them off at the pass. You anticipate the question and you're like, look, just go away. Here you go. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Like, side note, I actually feel for my mum and like my mum tries to not take things to heart. But like, I think there was a couple of times when she went through Malaysian immigration once with my brother and then another time with my brother and me. And I think once I think with my brother, they held her at the border at customs because they didn't believe that her children were her children. Like we were her kids. Wow. Like that's like, that is really upsetting. Yeah. That's, that's an intense experience traveling with your kids and then having to deal with that. I, um, I find it really interesting that you mentioned that your awareness of your blackness was very much first informed by other people's reaction to you. Yeah. Big time. Because you feel comfortable in your family unit and it's just when you've got to move around outside of that that you start to sort of gauge other people's reactions. How old were you, do you think, when you first started to notice that? I think when I was able to maybe not even be able to speak properly, you know, because some of my earliest memories, my earliest memories are really joyful ones, but, you know, but though I always felt insulated by their love, so it was okay. Oh, I love that phrase. Yeah. 
I remember like, you know, my grandparents would, would push me in a pram and I remember the, like when it would rain, there would be like this kind of like this clear plastic sheet that was put over. Oh, yes my pram so I'd see the raindrops on it but like I just remember always being with them and we'd go to high density Asian places and that that would be a hilarious sight seeing two Chinese grandparents wheeling around a black baby (laughs) you know the curiosity is natural there right you'd be like hmm (laughs) I think it's funny um but like you know they like I think it's a shared experience amongst all of us and I think maybe that's why there was even more love in our family just to say, you know what, you're safe. It's, you know. That's gorgeous. They sort of double down on it to make sure that even with all of those sort of funny experiences, you still felt that insulation. I love that. Do you guys laugh about those experiences now? Um, You know, uh, we don't even bring it up as like – amongst family we don't talk about we don't talk about that stuff like I think it's more you know present moment stuff but I do think about a lot especially now that you know it seems to be a time where we're trying to recall a lot of stories and like I don't think it's funny when you know a white person would come up to me as a child as I walk out of my primary school in Clayton and look at the palm of my hand and wonder why the palm of my hand is white and the other side is black was it brown you know like like to be inspected like a specimen is that really annoyed me but I didn't have the words to express it as a child um and then there's all these other microaggressions like when I started high school my we did a, a, a tour prior to signing up to the high school that I went to um and you know I went to Sacred Heart Girls College in Oakley And I ended up being the captain of this school come my year 12 year. But the earlier years were quite difficult under a different principal. And this particular principal, T.P. Kendall, was famous for um, providing scholarships for Fijian women to our school. Wow, right. But in exchange for them to run on our track team, because he loved the also loved the fact that our track team could win because we had these women who had this genetic advantage of running a lot faster than a lot of the other presumably white girls right, in the other right. girls' schools. So <clears throat> in my school tour, um, when I sat down in the principal's office sitting with my mum, I remember him looking at me in a particular way and saying, and then he asked me the question, do you run? And <laughs> to be racially profiled in that way as, wow. as to, like, how much benefit can this girl give to this school? like that really annoyed me and my reply was the honest reply which was no I can't I have chronic asthma I just (laughs) sorry to disappoint you mate (laughs) sorry to disappoint you can't deliver on the goods um ironically I ended up getting better from my asthma and did run for the track team in my interview he was determined yeah but he, he was long gone by then um, and then there was another one where I had braids and, um, you know, the, the vice principal, um, Mrs. O'Toole or Ms. O'Toole, um, threatened suspension because there's a particular rule at school that says no extravagant hairstyles. And um, Extravagant hairstyles, right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this matter has only been dealt with what in the last 12 months i think with some african girls at a particular school absolutely anti-discrimination 
it's an endless, endless uphill with the hairstyles. I feel like that hairstyles are like um, entry level bigotry. Yeah, yeah. It's just like it's it's so it, the the really frustrating thing about this Chantel, and you would empathise with this, is not being treated seriously and not being heard. When you say that this is a hairstyle to protect my hair and then you're still threatened with suspension and I can only have French braids at school, that's really frustrating. And I understand the symbolism in, like, get out with the sunken place. I feel like there's so many times where we're perpetually in a sunken place because we're not being heard. Not being heard. That's such a massive thing. Um, I was so excited to talk to you tonight because after episode one of the pod went live, I asked people to hit me up with any questions they'd Mm -hmm. like me to ask the aunties. And I had a really beautiful email last night from a young mixed race uh, sister who is um, of South, South African and Australian heritage. And she said she has really struggled to make people understand that Um, her life experience is different even though she's light-skinned and they think oh you know surely it's not you're not that black it doesn't make much of a difference to you and so we're constantly being silenced we're constantly having um, the validity of our experience completely ignored and I think that that is as you say that is the sunken place that we have to try and push through Mm. Yeah, the symbolism of the sunken place. When I saw that in Get Out, I was like, oh, my God, that is exactly he. Jordan Peele has been able to very accurately present how we feel through symbol. It was claustrophobic, wasn't it? I I felt so claustrophobic. And it really reminded me of all of those times when you open your mouth to try and speak in your defense or explain something and actually the words just disappear because you know that they're pointless yeah it's like you're screaming out to the void just as daniel kailua did seriously that's so true where have you been where you have felt heard and seen uh funnily enough and i guess obviously enough in the u.s Um, there's probably like two very clear examples for me. One of them that stands out in my mind was our first trip that, uh, when we were in New York in 98 and I think we were at, my mum and I were at a cosmetic store, kind of similar to Sephora, but, um, we were, there was a checkout chick there and I think she was like of Latina background. I think she just... For some reason, I think we were just saying, we were just chatting away and she goes, oh, this is your mum? Cool. Like, and there was like no ifs or buts about it, no looking at us in a peculiar way. Um, There was just pure acceptance. And that was so validating for me. And I felt like all of, I just thought that this, my teenager mind felt like all of America was like that. (laughs) Obviously not. (laughs) We wish. (laughs) We wish. But how refreshing. It was super refreshing. So, um, yeah, that was just like a real beautiful moment where I felt fully accepted. Um, and the other time, I think being a now having um, come to the full understanding of my sexuality, um, being in D.C. Um, at the time when Obama was still in administration, it was near the end of his term, oh. I went to a mixer that was run by a local um, 
a magazine of the DC Baltimore area called Tag Magazine. And I entered this oyster bar and there were all these women of all different cultures and everyone was obviously queer or queer identifying or curious. And it was, and, and clearly intellectual because it's DC and a lot of them were working with, for the Obama administration or similar affiliates or what have you. And it just felt so vibrant um, and open and I made instant friends that day. It just wasn't hard. Yeah, um, wonderful. You don't have that uphill battle of just explaining yeah. who you are before you can even start connecting. Exactly. And we could empathize with each other's experience. One of my friends actually now from that experience, her dad was the one of the leaders of the school integration movement when they lifted the segregation laws. Wow. Yeah, she says that he's like obviously super traumatized from it, which is like you think that, oh, wow, like, you know, that's such an honor. But like he was on the front lines and um, yeah, to know that he's just so affected by that. It's it's just it's also like he's done so much for us, for, for people at large. Yeah, for, yeah. But he has to bear the scars of it. Yeah. I, when we first um, connected, Fasina, I really loved what you said because we talked about um, trying to live our lives and inhabit our blackness and ourselves fully for people like her father who have put the groundwork in for us. Mm, mm. So true. Yeah, it's true. Uh, we have to carry on the legacy, don't we? Have you had any other really formative experiences that have made you feel like you want to really embrace your blackness and carry it forward. Yeah. When I was really cognizant of the blackness, I think, oh gosh, it was definitely engaging with the, with how the media industry portrays us. I was just, I was between careers or like I was deciding whether or not to stick around in television. Um, and I was in LA for a lot of that period of time. And I was watching the growth of the black renaissance happening right before my eyes. And a lot of that had to do with the work of Ava DuVernay, who is um, a director for the Oprah Winfrey Network. Um, uh, for She's the showrunner of Queen Sugar. And she had realized the system of, of, of women, of, of black directors, were being shut out. They, they were being shut out of the system. A lot of the jobs were going to white white men in their 40s. And so she decided to um, create uh, jobs for all these women in particular um, and women of colour and queer women, and that has shifted the culture of how black storytelling and how women and queer women are hired in the industry. I realised that that, that was a huge power shift in my industry alone. Mm. But in terms of just me as an individual in engaging in my experience in high school, I um, my mum took money off the mortgage to, to go to Ghana for the first time. And um, there I had met my tribe, my Kusasi tribe, a, a chief wow. of my tribe. I met my grandmother. How did you how did you find out um, about that side of your history? Oh yeah, so because my father passed away when I was a baby a lot of the connections to Ghana went to the ground with him. So that connection happened only because his sister 
my auntie Alima went over to London, I think for her first time, and arrived at my family's doorstep and um, or the old place that we used to live, realised that we didn't live there anymore, spoke to our neighbour. Our neighbour told her that we had moved to Australia over a decade ago and um, gave us gave her the phone number of the house that we lived in in Melbourne. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So I think it's because of my auntie Lima, really, like because of her wanting to make that connection, which I think is really incredible. And, it's beautiful um, that she found you, that she went from Europe to Australia and she kept going to find you guys. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, she called us up from, I think she was still in London at the time and 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 talked to my mum and I don't think my mum and her ever had like a relationship because, you know, back in the 70s there's Telegram and phone calls, but I don't think my mum and father's culture really mixed. It wasn't the liberties of, of what we have to, in technology as, as to what we have today. Yeah, they weren't liking each other's Instagram posts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't double tapping. Um, <laughs> but they, yeah, so she she reached out to my ma and, um, and then mum made the decision to take money off the mortgage and said it was important for us to know that side about us which was incredible for me because what a gift. Um, it was a real gift because it, it was it's always been really hard to talk about my father particularly in my family because he died suddenly in a car accident so there's still all that trauma yeah but interestingly this this trip happened and so we landed in Ghana for the first time you know a whole new experience and I think you know an experience that I could easily feel isolated from again because I'm not full Ghanaian and I don't have a Ghanaian life um, from like in Ghana. But it, what made me feel welcome again was that love that I'm feeling insulated by my grandmother. Beautiful. And um, one of the first things that she said to us was, you know, you look exactly like your father. And, um, you know, that was a really powerful moment for all of us in our family just to feel connected and safe with yeah, her. That acceptance immediately. Yeah. And, and you know, she really, she thanked God, Allah, for her. She's Muslim. Right. Um, you know, for us, for, for this moment, for, for us to be together. And, the, you know, what took place instead of verbal communication because we had my uncle was translating every time, um, you know, she would have something to say or we wanted to say things to her. But what filled that void or filled that space that would otherwise be taken by conversation, if you both had the same, could speak in the same dialect, is akin to my Chinese family, which is, you know, instead of ver- verbal communication, there was gestures. And the gestures usually involved cooking, and cooking for the people that you love. Gosh, and we so, use gestures so much, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, I really feel that, that yeah, the gestures of communication and cooking is definitely big with ethnic families. Huge, huge. If I haven't cooked for you, then I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Wow, so, so you're in your grandma's house she, and she's, uh, you're getting to eat at your grandma's house for the first time in, in Ghana. That's amazing. Yeah, she made us fufu for the first the first night, 
and so that's a popular Ghanaian dish. Do have you had fufu before? Is that like a, the pounded yam? Yeah, it's like yeah, pounded cornmeal maybe. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, and so it's a it's a very soft texture, and I think she had like kind of like a hot curry next to it, and I felt rude because I didn't enjoy the fufu, and um. And it was really hot. Like the spicy soup that was next to it was just hotter than any Chinese Malaysian dish I've ever had. So, <laughs> it's like a level up, level up in yeah, heat. yeah. It's just like yeah, Ghanaian heat. Like Chinese heat or Malaysian heat has nothing on Ghanaian heat. Wow. Um, but I, but word had gone back to my grandma at the table, like that I was finding it really difficult to eat. But like the next day. Apparently, like for Ghanaian custom, is to bring a live animal home and slay, like um, slain the animal and cook it for, yeah. as a family meal. And she came from the market one day carrying this chicken, this live chicken, um, to cook for us. And I just thought that act was so beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, and she made like a much milder dish <laughs> for, for her western influenced granddaughter <laughs> that's so that's so lovely though because i think that that's one of the things that you fear when you sort of inverted commas go home that you know, you know will will i be will i be accepted will all of my funny western ways or you know my european or anglo ways or uh, whatever yeah. separate me from my people but uh, we we close those gaps we have this wonderful way of just embracing each other yeah, that's what I've yeah come to understand. I, and it's only because I've been writing for this book series that comes out next year called Growing Up African in Australia um, and with Maxine Benet McClark that I've been able to delve into a lot of these memories in a lot more of a precise way because I have to put it to paper. Yeah, so yeah. I have to really be very descriptive of my experience and then kind of fact check with family members. And so... I think it's something that I also probably would have taken for granted and kind of just would have allowed to be a significant memory but a foggy one as well and I wouldn't have cherished it as much as if I hadn't been forced to write it down um, and ruminate over it for, for many days. But I spoke to my auntie. I still carry the guilt of not liking the fufu, right, because it's the first gesture my grandmother gives to me and I don't like it. Like, well, I can't, like, I my body doesn't look the taste you, of it, right? You, I absolve you. The fufu <laughs> forgives you. <laughs> <laughs> so when I spoke to my auntie to find out more about the character of like my dad and stuff, um, uh, which was already like a real challenge for me to come to terms with the fact that I needed to know these stories. And I think like it was, it's just been a really difficult thing within my family. So I had to, for me to step out of the core family unit and to ask my auntie, that felt kind of strange, like I, almost like a betrayal. I totally get it. It's because, and so, and this is for the book writing process. You've been doing that recently. Yeah. Yeah. But little did I know that I just needed it for my soul. Like, Oh man, Faustina, I hear you. I hear you so much on that. Yeah. So it was huge. But like in the conversation that I had with my auntie Alima, she was like, 
And she's always been open to chat and everything, but for some reason I just felt guilty for speaking with her directly. But I got over that really quickly and just made myself do it and asked her these really obvious questions that I felt guilty that I never had asked her before, asking like what my dad was like and what food he liked. And then she volunteers this information up. I don't probe her. And she goes, your dad didn't like fufu. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) All that fufu guilt you've been carrying. He didn't like the texture. It was sticky. And, (laughs) and you know, he, you know, if he ever had to eat it, he'd throw the fufu into the bowl, into the soup and then eat it that way. And I'm like, Oh my God. Oh my God. That's gorgeous. That's gorgeous. And (laughs) that, Love, even though it's a seemingly small thing, I know what it takes to break out of the kind of feeling of loyalty of not asking pain, potentially painful questions. Yeah. So I know what an uphill climb that is, and to get that lovely little gem out of it, beautiful. Yeah. And that's just yeah. the beginning, right? Because once you shake off the feeling that you can't ask and you start opening up, oh, there's so there's so much beautiful stuff for you to find out and you know challenging stuff maybe but I feel like our generation we're up for asking those questions yeah otherwise like the my fear was if I don't ask I used to think I initially thought I was asking on behalf of my family and for their healing but really I was asking for myself and um and if we don't ask these questions, these stories, the oral history will forever go to the ground with them. And that was the thing that scared me the most was I could not lose yet another family member who knew my dad to cancer or to some illness or to old age. Like I need to speak to these people now. Yeah. 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 They have this, the memories fresh in their mind and make a recollection or a, you know, or, or write it down or at least write some notes for my sake, you know, even if it's just for my own selfish spiritual reasons. And that, that um, is valid reason enough. Completely valid, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, what's your experience? I'm interested in what your experience is, if you can empathize with this, because I, I felt like I was alone in being guilty. But oh. what, yeah, if you're I'm, willing to share it. I'm delighted to share it um, because hearing you say that has been so... So I'm, I'm sitting here with my hand on my heart, on my chest, like, oh, it's so beautiful to hear that I too have a family with, you know, some painful events in the past that we've sort of been vaguely aware of as kids growing up, but nobody's ever spoken about. Um, and I have just dutifully kept my mouth shut and not asked any questions um but as i've gotten older i've realized that not asking those questions was a massive disservice to myself and i really think that um look it's tough thinking you might make your mum feel sad or you might make your grandma have to have a conversation that she doesn't want to have but um that is actually where my auntie, my auntie as well, my auntie Audith has come in really handy. And I've just uh, gone up to her and asked her questions. And the really interesting thing for me was that um, in my asking her questions, so uh, my, my mom was brought up by her auntie 
because her mom passed away when she was quite young and we just never talked about it and so by asking my auntie Audith the questions um, I saw how it freed her because she was like me she was the curious one in the family and she's gone through this experience and because of the code of silence she's never been able to have a conversation with anyone about it oh my god imagine being in you know your whole life and the only people who shared your like this significant life experience have all kind of got a, a nudge nudge wink wink deal that for perfectly valid reasons they're not going to talk about it but it was kind of burning a hole in her pocket you know so when I connected with her, it was awesome for me, but it was awesome for her too. And I reckon there's other people in your family, like your auntie, who you asking that question, that's probably made her feel fantastic as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point, actually. And, you know, she can enjoy the good memories with me, which is nice. You know, I wouldn't have heard the stories of my my dad being so loving to her and putting her on his shoulders as a young kid, you know, um, and sending anything that she needed for her school, um, for, for her schooling from London, you know, through the post. So um, it's those little gestures and those little stories about his character that fill me up. And so did you have a sense of your grandmother's character more so from the exchanges between you and your aunt. Exactly. It gave her to me. Wow. It, yeah. It gave her to me. And um, I'm learning as I'm getting older how important our antecedents is, our ancestry and our family is. And even though I never met her, um, bringing her memory to life with these stories has given her to me in a way that makes her real and Mm -hmm. I actually invoke her memory all the time now Um, I think of her often the last time uh, was when I was um, I love I love hiking I'm a through hiker and one day I was hiking in Japan and I was on the last day of this really amazing pilgrimage hike that I did Um, and uh, it's a really hectic climb (laughs) It's uh, two hours of just straight uphill and that beautiful um, Ghanaian Ghanaian genetic ancestry of mine has equipped me with a little bit of junk in the trunk to heave up the hill. Wait, so you're Ghanaian too? Yes. So my family found out my mom did one of those um, ancestry DNA things because my family are from Central America but we, yeah. ne- we never knew where we were from because obviously they didn't keep many records. People in America who are from um, sort of uh, the, the, the descendants of slaves, um, they are sometimes able to access records. But in the Caribbean, the record keeping was not so not so flash. So um, this whole ancestry DNA thing has opened up a whole new way for us to find out where we're from. And my mom, my mom is such an interesting lady because she normally keeps things quite close to her chest. But all of a sudden, she just sent us the results of her DNA test, and we found out that we're primarily Ghanaian, which was oh my god, I know, right? It's absolutely amazing because my mom took us to West Africa 
when I was about 17. Yeah. Me and my little brother. And uh, she, I, I realize now that she was trying to give us the opportunity to have that connection too. Um, yeah, but, right. but the thing is, she didn't know where we were from. So she just took us to West Africa, um, which is the general geographic area. And I had an amazing experience of walking down the street at 17 years old and a man coming up and greeting me in language. Wow. And I I said to him, "Oh, you know, I'm I'm really sorry. I'm I'm I don't speak the language. I'm English." And he said, "You're Ghanaian." Oh, that's amazing. So he he said, "I look at you, sister. You are Ghanaian. Yeah. You are you are one of us." And yep. isn't that crazy? He that's he just pla- yep. he placed me just yep. from looking at me. Yeah to feel like you belong like that and to feel like your um your people will always find you yeah yeah they will find you you're so right it's when you're there you can see the the similarities and he clearly saw that in you he saw that you look like family you know that's that must have been so wow oh, my 17 year old brain could not contain it but me and mum when she got those dna results we were just oh it blew our socks off it was gorgeous it was like it was a beautiful experience anyway but then to have it confirmed like that and be like that man he knew what was up yeah he knew he knew his sister when he saw her yeah yeah do you feel that too sometimes like when you see certain people you're like you can place exactly what race they are do you know, I I definitely feel sometimes when I see people, oh, mm. I'm f- you're familiar to me. Mm. You know, I feel like a sense of familiarity with people, mm. and I'm really enjoying at this at the current moment. Um, just since Black Panther, the my black my black nod game has gone through the roof. Like I'm just, <laughs> I'm like I'm doing like the same bolt. Start. I'm like doing the Black Panther arms. I'm, I'm, I'm really making sure people know I've spotted them. That's and so and then great. often, I'm like, she looks Jamaican to me. She looks Caribbean to me. And often that is the case. Yeah, that's cool. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. And again, yeah. it's just that kind of cutting through. What can be a bit lonely, really, for us, I think, moving through spaces where people can't necessarily empathise with us all the time and just mm-hmm. having that little um, little gem of connection. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're so right. It's, um, yeah, there's, I love, I love that. I love that. You're, you're right about the nodding thing. Um, it's a, like a nice grounding gesture to know that you're seen. <laughs> It is. Grounding is such a beautiful way to describe that. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a beautiful story about your grandma. Seriously. It's, and so, yeah, as I'm, as I'm walking up this massive climb, I came in out of the trees into, um, a clearing with a massive view. And I immediately just had this sense of, of complete gratitude for all of the women who'd come before me, especially my grandmothers, because it occurred to me that 
what I was doing at that time would have been incomprehensible to them, for them to have the freedom to go, I'm just going to go and hike for six days in Japan. And I felt, I really felt incredibly aware of all of the groundwork that they had laid down and the sacrifices they'd made to make me free. Yeah. And it was, I'm not ashamed to admit I was blubbing my eyes out. And then some poor poor woman came along the hiking trail and you know i'm already like a random black girl on a hiking trail in japan which has people scratching their heads but um yeah i was blubbing my eyes out and she was just like okay i'm gonna keep walking (laughs) (laughs) oh beautiful yeah it was gorgeous you're right when you do reach these moments of personal triumphs it's not you you acknowledge that it's not just your own you acknowledge that it's connected to an ancestry of them wanting wanting this for you um i get that time and time again i hear you chantelle oh my god isn't that and isn't that a beautiful feeling it is it is it's wonderful that you experience that through nature and through uh, uh, something very physical when do you feel it one of those moments for you I feel it when um, I've achieved something that perhaps I don't know what the the ripple effect is. Like when I found out, when I got the phone call from my agent at the time telling me that I got the job at Video Hits, that was big for me because it felt like all the work that I had put in into my education, in going to Sydney, um, on my own and grinding it out and working for TV networks for free while I was juggling, juggling two degrees and um, working part-time work, um, oh. facing so many doors where people would say no to me or people saying, you know, why are you still hanging around here? Um, if you think you're going to get a job here, you know, at this particular TV network, you're you're wildly mistaken. And it just finally felt like like I finally got the yes that I needed. The you know? affirmation as well of all of that work you'd put in. Yeah. And I think, you know, obviously that is an extension from my trip in Ghana. Actually, the the, the big kind of moment for me was standing <clears throat> at the slave ports and then seeing uh, the door in which all the slaves went through to then to uh, board the ships to go to the UK and America. And above the door is a sign that says point of no return. And it just shook me in a way that it ignited a fire in me that made me realize my privilege and the, as you say, the, the, the work of our ancestors and what they've had to, to go through in order for, for women like you and I to exist um, as freely as we can in the, in the year 2018. And that after that point, because I was I was wagging school a lot and staying at home and watching Oprah and just like really not engaging in 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 my studies. But after that, I just I went back home and I just started slaying at literally everything I could. Wow! That, every opportunity that was presented to me, I did not care that I wasn't as smart as the next girl in my class. I was going to be. I was going to get that straight A for me, you know. It brought it home to you. So getting that connection with the people who came before and understanding where you'd come from was like an engine. It just fired you right up. 
Yeah, big time. And it's the thing that's always stayed in me. And every now and again, it gets diminished, like homophobia or, you know, having been in an abusive relationship. And, you know, that fire dwindles. But then the flames are fanned again in the moments when I really do need it and um, I can get up on my feet again and get going. Um, and I guess another example would be, you know, seeing other seeing other black people succeed is probably mm. the biggest great constant for, for me you know seeing other people winning is incredible we cheer um, each other on so much don't we yeah like lena waith um winning the emmy for best comedy writing i think um Game for master changer. of none I saw the acceptance speech when i was backstage at sydney theater company or in my dressing room at sydney theater company and I just started, that was my first kind of proper professional acting gig last year. And I was in tears watching it on my iPad because as a black queer woman, she'd made it, you know, like, and she, and her speech was so sincere. She was just saying to every every person in the LGBTI community, I see you, I see each and every one of you. And like that, was a beautiful moment and you know around that time you know every time I mentioned her on Instagram or whatever she'd send a love heart back oh that's <laughs> which, gorgeous which was a you know you know wonderful I didn't never expect that but um and it was powerful because she had Angela Bissett in it and I'd seen Angela Bissett in this play called Mountaintop and have you seen Mountaintop I haven't like, tell me about it okay so it's about the life of it's a fictional tale of Martin Luther King um, the night before he's assassinated at the Lorraine Hotel. Wow. And Samuel L. Jackson plays Martin Luther King, and it's all set in the Lorraine Hotel in his motel room. Um, and Angela Bissett is this character called Kamei who comes in and, like, delivers cigarettes to him because he wants cigarettes. And um, they the whole play is is between the two of them and they're just having a conversation the entire time um, wow. about, you know, you know, just her delivering the cigarettes and just saying, you know, oh, my gosh, you're, Mr. you're Dr. King and, you know, here's so many great things about you. It's such a pleasure, sir. I'll be on my way. And he's like, no, 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 stay. I want to have a conversation, you know, because he's feeling kind of lonely, you know, because he's so busy campaigning all the time. And I think he wanted to practice his speech in front of her or something. And... Um, through the conversation, you know, their life stories get revealed to them more and more, and we kind of see Martin Luther King, the human, more so than the icon. And we also get to know Kamei, who is this black woman, but who turns out to be the angel of death, who wow. has been sent by God. She died the night before because she's a sex worker who was strangled by um, a man. In that moment, right before she died, she I think she realised what forgiveness was, passed on and was sent on duty by God, who's a big black woman. Naturally. <laughs> um, to take Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King to the other side. Wow. So, yeah, that's when you get the goosebumps. Chills. Yeah, you know? just even just imagining it, I'm, yeah, Wow. Yeah, so she's, you know, after an hour's conversation between the two of them, which ranges from all the moods and you're laughing and then at, at times you're, you're gasping, but she says, you know, um, I'm here to take you to the other side. Um, you'll die tomorrow. And, you know, 
Dr. King is freaking out and he's just like, when will it happen and where? And then she points out to outside the door and she goes out there on the balcony and he's, he's saying, but there's so much I need to do for the movement. There's so much more I want to give. There's I, my dream hasn't been fulfilled yet. And then she says, there'll be others that will carry your legacy. I get so moved by it. By I'm, I'm here just going, don't crash and tell. <laughs> and, um, and so she, and then Angela Bassett's character goes on this incredible monologue of all the African-Americans that, that, um, have passed on, have, have picked up his baton and passed oh. it on to the next person throughout the course of history. And it's, you know, but, you know, Kamei also brings up other things that have happened in history that aren't particularly related to the advancement of the black movement, but just so that you can see the points of time. Yeah, the, and the, the connection and that, yeah. that timeline, that through line. The three lines. The three line. Yeah, wow. And I'm hearing you say that, and I'm really getting a feeling in my tummy, Fasina, of what Mm -hmm. it would have felt like for you to see Lena win, because that's a through line, right? For you. Yeah, that's a through line. And Mm. it's a through, it's a massive through. And for Angela to play her mum, who Mm. was not accepting of her sexuality, you know, and then coming, you know, and turning you know, a new leaf and coming to understand her over the many Thanksgivings was huge for me to watch because I was able to sit in a theatre with Angela some years prior, breathe the same air as Angela. Holy moly. You know, and just see this force on stage and then for her to play this very significant figure in Lena's life story is just which then which then also connected so much to your own lived experience as well yeah yeah it's just but that particular play that felt that was like an ancestral moment where you're just like oh my gosh we've just been on this for an entire for the entire lifetime of humanity like yeah but feeling plugged into that is is incredible huge 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 yeah she goes through all kinds of people and people that we might not desire like you know she mentions all these rappers names and things like that and like yeah they might not be um you know framed in a perfect um you know light as martin luther king has been but you know they're still significant yeah they carry the torch forward in their way in their way, you know, and that that was was really beautiful to see. And then when when all that is happening, the the entire motel room dismantles and goes up into the abyss. And then there is like this screen behind her that shows all the images of all the great people that come after MLK. Um, but yeah, that was that was a big moment for me. But yeah, but seeing Lena wow. win was huge. Um, the Black Panther movie, it being just so friggin' awesome, was huge. Um, and huge for you as an as an artist as well, I guess. Mm. As a as a woman of color, as a as a proudly out queer woman who's gone through that journey, but also as somebody who's committed their life to art. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering whether or not I should stick around, like to 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 do it and seeing other people win um not necessarily winning awards but just doing so well 
um, and making a life and career out of it drives me to do the same. It makes me want to stay as opposed to thinking of an entirely different career option. Um, it makes you want to stay. That's such a big one. It makes you want to yeah. say, cause do you know what? It takes a hell of a lot to even put yourself forward. Mm. That's one thing, but people underestimate also the grit it takes to stay. Mm-hmm. Big time because the, you know, it's, it's a lot of emotional work and it's a, but you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. I can't just clock in and clock out on a regular job in my life. Like I think that I'm made to do this work, but uh, yeah, it does make me want to stay. Thanks again to my amazing guest and thank you for listening. So you've heard what the aunties have to say. What do you think? Hey, auntiepod at gmail.com Facebook or Instagram. That's Auntie A-U-N-T-Y. Don't forget to like and subscribe and join us in a week for the next show.